Welcome, welcome back, my wonderful people. Shall we continue our beautiful journey of the fae folk, the fairies? And the next one is, now it can be pronounced a few ways. It's A-I-N-E. Some people just pronounce it in. Some people pronounce it in there. It just depends. It does have a different sound to it when you talk to many different people. I've talked I've talked to so many different people and they do all pronounce it quite differently. But anyway, in one of the most famous fairy queens of Ireland. In has strong ties to the southwest. Like most Irish deities, in has a complex and sometimes contradictory mythology. Is considered a human girl taken by the fairies in later folklore, as well as a fairy queen and a member of the Tuatha de Dianon. In some of the earlier stories, we will get to the Tuatha de Dianon later on, guys. According to some, she is the daughter of Mananan, Maclir, while others say she is the daughter of Mananan's foster son. Now, how this is pronounced, I'm not sure. Eogabael, um, E-O-G-A-B-A-I-L. He was a druid of the Tuatha de Dianon. In the Cath Mage Mukrama, her father is a fairy king who holds Nok in before being killed. After which, in rules there. Her name likely means brightness or splendour. And she's often associated with the sun. Not far from Ain's Ill is another, Nokrene, associated with the fairy queen, Grayan, literally sun, who is also probably a goddess. Some sources consider the two to be sisters. And there is a source from MacKillop who suggests that Ain and Grayan may represent the summer and the winter suns, respectively. There's also a modern trend of describing Ain as a moon goddess, although there is nothing in myth or folklore to support that. Like many fairy queens, Ain is reputed to have love affairs with mortals and several Irish families are said to be descended from her unions, which is very interesting. This also includes the Fitzgeralds. The most well-known of these descendants may be Geroit, Iala, the third Earl of Desmond. Folk stories say that his father found Ain combing her hair out by the edge of Laugorun. On that day, the two actually became lovers, resulting in Geroid. His fame is due in part to the amount of folklore surrounding the end of his mortal life and the potential that he may have returned to his mother or been taken by the fair folk. By some accounts, Geroid was taken into Loch Gur and would return one day, and in other stories, he lives within the lake and can be seen riding beneath the water on a white fairy horse. While still, other stories claim that Ain turned him into a goose on the shore of the lake. The hill of Loch Ain is one of the most well-known places associated with her, said to have been named after her during the settling of Ireland when she used magic to help her father win the area. Midsummer was her special holy day, and up until the 19th century, people continued to celebrate her on the eve of Midsummer, with a procession around the hill, carrying torches and burning straw in honour of Ain. Ain of Wisps. Sometimes she is called that too. Ain is also sometimes called Ain Schla, a word that means or relates to wisps or maybe an old name for the Carrier Limerick area. On midsummer, clumps of straw would be lit on a hill and then scattered through the cultivated fields and cows to appropriate Ain's blessing. Some of these practices are seeing modern revivals. In County Louth, there is a place called Dun Ain where people believe that the weekend after, Lungnasa belongs to Ain. And in some folklore, she is said to be the consort of Cromquack, 
during the three days of Lunasa. Additionally, there is another hill called Lock-In in County Derry and a third in Donegal. In Ulster, there is a well called Tobain that bears her name too. Whether a goddess or a fairy queen, Ain has been much loved, even up until fairly recently. Her mythology is convoluted but fascinating, and they say she is the best-hearted woman who ever did live. And that is Ain, or Ainney, however you want to pronounce her name, of course. That's entirely up to you, the fairy queen. <laughs> Not that I ever met a fairy queen, but I'm pretty sure that they would be absolutely beautiful, wouldn't they? You know, all fairy fairies in general are meant to be very beautiful, so I'm sure she would be. Thank you for listening to this next part in our encyclopedia of fairies and many blessings. everybody welcome back to my channel and the wonderful world of the fae folk the fairies next we are now on alice brand now it's a poem by sir walter scott it was only written in the 19th century so not so far away but it contains fairy sort of lore in its themes the poem tells a story of how Alice Brand and her lover Richard were forced to flee the outlaws in a forest after Richard kills Alice's brother. The wood belongs to the fairy folk and the elfin king resents their presence and disruption of his realm. He sends out a being named Ergan to curse Richard, choosing this particular fairy to send because he was once a christened human and is therefore impervious to Christian signs and prayers. Ergan does go out to do this, but is stopped by Alice, who questions who he is and why he has come to them. He tells her that he was taken by the king of fairy when he was dying, and of his subsequent life in fairy and admits that he was once mortal and could be restored if a brave woman would cross his forehead three times. Alice does this, does this for him, and Ergan's true form is restored, and his identity is then revealed. So this is the poem. Merry it is in the good green wood When the mavis and merle are singing When the deer sweeps by and the hounds are in cry And the hunter's horn is ringing O oh Alice Brand, my native land Is lost for love of you And we must hold by wood and wold As outlaws want to do Oh, Alice, t'was all for thy locks so bright, T'was all for thine eyes so blue, That on the night of our luckless flight Thy brother bold I slew. Now must I teach to you the beach, The hand that held the glaive, For leaves to spread our lowly bed, And stakes to fence our cave. And for vest of palm, thy fingers small, that want on harp to stray. A cloak must shear from the slaughtered deer, to keep the cold away. Richard, if my brother died, twas but a fatal chance. For darkling was the battle tried, and fortune sped the lance. If pal and ver no more I wear, nor thou the crimson sheen, as warm will stay in the russet grey, as gay the forest green. And, Richard, if our lot be hard, and lost thy native land, still Alice has her own Richard, and he is Alice Brand. Tis merry, Tis merry, is good green wood. So blithe Lady Alice is singing on the beech's pride and the oak's brown side. Lord Richard's axe is ringing, up spoke the woody elfin king, who, wooded within the hill, 
like wind in the porch, arraigned at church. His voice was a ghastly shrill. Why sounds you stroke on beech and oak? Our moonlight circles screen. Oh, who comes here to chase the deer, beloved of our elfin queen? Or who may dare, or wold, to wear the fairies' fatal green? Up, Ergen, up, to you, mortal high, for thou wert christened man, for cross or sign thou wilt not fly, for mattered word or ban. Lay on him the curse of the withered heart, the curse of thy sleepless eye, till he wish and pray that his life would part, nor yet find leave to die. Tis merry, tis merry in good green wood, though the birds have still their singing. The evening blaze doth Alice raise, and Richard his faggots bringing. Up Ergen starts that hideous dwarf before Lord Richard stands. And has he crossed and blessed himself? I fear not sign, quoth the grisly elf, that is made with bloody hands. But how then spoke she, Alice Brand, that woman void of fear? And if there's blood upon his hand, tis but the blood of deer. Now loud thou liest, thou bolder mood. It cleaves unto his hand, the stain of thine unkindly blood, the blood of Ethert Brand. Then forward stepped she, Alice Brand, and made the holy sign. And if there's blood on Richard's hand, a spotless hand is mine. And I conjure thee, demon elf, by him whom demons fear, to show us whence Thou art thyself, and what thine errand here. Tis merry, tis merry in fairy land, when fairy birds are singing, and when the court doth ride by their monarch's side, with bit and bridle ringing. And gaily shines the fairy land, but all is glistening show, like the idle gleam. That December's beam can dart on ice and snow, And fading like the very gleam In our inconsistent shape, Who now like knight and lady seem, And now like dwarf and ape. It was between the night and day When the fairy king has power That I sunk down in a simple fray, And twixt life and death Was snatched away. To the joyous elfin bower, but wist I of a woman hold, who thrice my brow dost sign, I might regain my mortal mould, as fair a form as thine. She crossed him once, she crossed him twice, that lady was so brave. The fouler grew his goblin hue, the darker grew the cave. She crossed him thrice, that lady bold. He rose beneath the hand, the fairest knight on Scottish mould, a brother, Ethert Brand. Merry it is in good green wood, when the mavis and the mill are singing. But merry were they in Dunfermline Grey, when all the bells were ringing. From 1998. This poem contains some common fairy lore themes, including powers of Christian symbols. Green, the fairy colour, transformation into a fairy, rescue from a fairy. The fairies and Alice Brand are averse to Christian symbols, the implication being that they cannot bear them, and so must send one of their member, who is exempt from the aversion due to his previous state as a christened human. There is repeated emphasis on the colour green, both in the naming of the greenwood and in the wearing of green, by the pair being what angers the elfin king, who feels that colour belongs to the fairies. 
And there is the idea that a human straddling life and death can be seized by the fairies and taken to join their number in the human's relatives, all believing that person is dead. This idea is, of course, seen as well in Tam Lin and the wider array of challenging <clears throat> and the changeling law, of course. The idea of rescuing a person from fairy is presented in a more unique way in Alice Brand, seeming closer to an exorcism or breaking of an enchantment than what we might expect of a typical rescue. In this sense, it is a significant piece of evidence relating to beliefs around the topic. The interweaving of these themes made this particular poem an important one in the corpus of ballad material, although Alice Brand is not as well known as others like Tam Lin or Thomas the Rhymer. And that is our next episode on the fair folk of the fairies, Alice Brand. What a beautiful poem that is, actually. It's a very nice poem indeed. Thank you so much for listening and joining me on this adventure and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the A to Z of Fairies Encyclopedia of the Fairies. The next we are on is Alp Luachra. Alp Luachtra, believed by some to be a natural illness described in folklore and by others to be a kind of fairy being. Rev Kirk equates it to the Scottish joint eater, a salamander-like creature that sneaks into the open mouth of a sleeping person if they are lying near water and afterwards resides within them. The Alp Luachtra consumes the food the person eats, so that the person in turn becomes ill and wastes away. Douglas Hyde speaks of it in his book, where a person afflicted by one is described this way. I tell you again, and believe me, that it's an Alp Luachtra you swallowed. Didn't you say yourself that you felt something leaping in your stomach the first day after you being sick? That was the Alp Luachtra, and as the place he was in was strange to him at first. He was uneasy in it, moving backwards and forwards, but when he was a couple of days there, he settled himself, and he found the place comfortable, and that's the reason you keep him so thin. For every bit you're eating, the Alp Luachtra is getting the good out of it, and you said yourself, that one side of you was swelled. That's a place where the nasty thing is living. Hyde, 1890. In Hyde's account, the person finds no relief from doctors, but is eventually led by a beggar, said to be more knowledgeable in this kind of illness. And who has the cure? The ill man is fed a great amount of heavily salted meat, and then instructed to lay down by a stream with his mouth open. After waiting for a long time, the Alp Luachtra, there are more than a dozen, who are thirsty from the salt, are driven out of the person by the smell of the water. This is considered the standard cure for these beings in folklore, as nothing else will get them to depart the person's body willingly. And that's what Briggs says about it in 1976. But again, they're also very similar to the joint eater also. So obviously there are a few different ones there. Then we move on to the Amadanna Bruidni, the fairy fool. The two most dangerous fairies in folklore, arguably, may be the fairy queen and the fairy fool, both of whom are said to bring madness with a touch. The fairy queen may be the more well-known, with a good amount of folklore to be found about her under either the title or specific name, or the fairy fool is not as well-known. Although usually simply called the fairy fool in English, 
In Irish, we find at least two distinct types of fairy fools. The Amaden, Na Brudni, full of the fairy hall, and Amadimo, great fool. The Brudni inspired terror because one touch from him could paralyze a person, drive them mad, or even kill them. There, in some debate about whether his touch was the fairy stroke or a different type of power, but since madness, paralysis and death and things of that variety of fairies can cause, it's hard to be certain. Unlike the illnesses caused by other types of fairies, however, the damage caused by the touch of the fairy fool was impervious to any magical or herbical herbal cures, which is part of why he's especially feared. In contrast to the Amadena Brudni, the Amadamor is a more elusive figure who may appear as a king of the fairies or leading the fairy host, but was still associated with the fearsome qualities of the fairy fool. It's always risky, of course, to run into any of the fairy folk, but the fairy fool represented a particular danger. As in related by Yeats, quoting someone he had interviewed, they, the other sort of people, might be passing you close here, and they might touch you, but any that gets the touch of the Amadan Nabrini, fairy fool, is done for. By some accounts, every group of fairies counted among their numbers both a queen and a fairy fool. That was what Yeats said. The queen of Elfland is discussed elsewhere and established as a very powerful being, along with the queen. Though we see the fool described as just an ubiquitous fairy and equally powerful in a different way because the fools bring uncurable madness to those who touch. The fairy fool can be male or female, but it's the male fool that is more commonly seen in stories. The male fool were described appearing in the form of a sheep with a herd, or as a half-naked person with great strength and distorted features. That was also said by Yeats in, in 1962. Other folklore said that the fairy fool was a shapeshifter, who could change shape every couple of days between a young seeming human form to that of an animal. However, in any form, try to touch a person and drive them mad. Despite these seemingly fluid forms and variety of appearances, the Amadden Na Bruni in a folklore seems to have been easily recognised for what he was by those who saw him, perhaps indicating that he has an aura of otherworldliness or madness to him that humans could perceive. Seeing the fairy fool in and of itself presents no danger, and there are stories of those who saw the fool and managed to escape or avert him without being armed. However, if he did succeed in touching the person, they would go mad. Even if they lived for years afterwards there, would be no cure for the fool's touch. When the Amadena Bruni appeared, he might be seen by a person travelling alone or by a person among a group, even though the rest of the group saw nothing. Yeats related one story of the fairy fool in his book, Celtic Twilight, told to him by an old woman in the 19th century. He was a boy I knew well, and he told me that one night a gentleman came to him, that had been his landlord, and that was dead, and he told him to come along with him, for he wanted him to fight another man. And when he went, he found two great troops of them, fairies, and the other troop had a living man with them too, and he was put to fight him, and they had a great fight, and he got the better of the other man, and then the troop on his side gave a great shout, and he was left home again. But about three years after that, he was cutting bushes in a wood, and he saw the Amadan coming at him. He had a big vessel in his arms, and it was shining, so that the boy could see nothing else. But he put it behind his back then, and came running, and the boy said he looked wild and wide, like the side of the hill, and the boy ran, and he threw the vessel after him, and it broke with a great noise. And whatever came out of it, his head was gone there and then. He lived for a while after, and he used to tell us many things, but his wits were gone. He thought 
They mightn't have liked him to beat the other man. That was by Yeats also in 1962. According to Yeats, the saucer's June was the most dangerous month for fairy encounters because apparently in June, the activity of a fairy fool is absolutely increased. Hmm. What it means, by the way, when uh, the story says he lost his head, it does not mean he physically lost his head, it means he lost his mind, his mental state because of the touch from the fairy fool. So it's not the fact that the vessel broke and his head came off. It's when the vessel broke, the fairy fool had that he heard something or something then caused his mind to break, so his mental stability to break, not the literal coming off of his head. Um, also, there is a couple of ways of spelling um, the Brini. Um, I'll pop it in the description because it's spelt the Brani and the Brini, but it is the same. So I'll pop those in the description in case anybody is curious to what I mean by that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the many fairies we are learning about. Please hit the like, share if you can, and also do consider subscribing. All of these are completely free and they do really help the channel. Thank you so much and many blessings. everyone welcome back to my channel and the encyclopedia of fairies though we are on fairies we're actually now on aliens however a question that comes up for these who do study fairies and folklore of course is what if any connection might exist between fairies and extraterrestrials there is certainly no consensus on the topic with avid ufologists viewing fairies as a previous understanding of aliens, and many fairyologists seeing aliens and UFOs as a modern way to interpret fairies and fairy encounters. Fairies have been a part of belief in folklore for as long as we have written stories from the various cultures we find them in. However, as we have moved culturally into the modern and postmodern period, Fairies have largely, in the dominant culture of America, become regulated to children's stories and nostalgia. This left a contextual void for people having experience to use to explain what they were experiencing. The void was filled by fiction and film, as pop culture embraced the idea of extraterrestrials, and our cultural consciousness became saturated by these new stories. The first aliens appear in fiction as early as 1887 in the short story titled Les Sivius, and in Hollywood in the silent films of the early 1900s. The idea, however, really bloomed post-World War II in both speculative fiction and film. The first UFO sighting in the US is thought to have occurred in 1947. The first reported abduction in 1961. This timeline is roughly synchronous with a shift to viewing fairies in America as twee nature spirits intending to minimalise their potential danger to humans. When we compare fairy law and alien and UFO law, we can see some striking similarities. In traditional fairy law, fairies are well known to steal people, sometimes permanently sometimes temporarily. In cases where people are returned, they may have terrifying stories of their experience and may have physical marks. In turn, alien abduction stories also feature aliens stealing people sometimes for benign purposes or obscure ones, sometimes for cruel reasons. The people are returned with nightmarish memories and sometimes physical marks. The Sluisihi are noted to lift people up into the sky, and they are, as well as some other types of fairies, were said to carry people across the sky or fly with them, returning them later. 
modern UFO encounters sometimes include people being taken up into alien crafts and carried away only to be returned to Earth. The reason for taking people, including forced reproduction, are also consistent between both fairy stories and alien abductions, although how the two play out historically versus currently, they do vary. Times often noted to move differently in the world of fairy. So too, those who describe alien abductions. They often talk about weird issues with time. Particularly in fairy, it has been said that what feels like a day there will be much longer amounts of time here and this is also said for alien abductions. People describe being gone for minutes that were really hours or hours that were really days. Some fairy encounters, including those with beings like the Moran, including sleep paralysis and overwhelming fear that occur to a person in their bed. In the same way, alien encounters are sometimes described as happening to a person who is sleeping and wakes to find themselves unable to move and terrified. The descriptions, both types of encounters, look almost identical when the type of being isn't actually mentioned. Although the modern alien encounters usually involve abduction as well, which the Moran do not. Food can play a role in both fairy encounters and alien encounters. In traditional fairy encounters, fairies would often offer food to people, usually with the intent of trapping the person in fairy so that they could not leave. In some alien encounters, the person is offered food of various sorts, as well although the intention is very unclear. In fairy law, when the food was refused, there are stories of the fairies trying to force a person to eat the food or drink the liquid, or physically punishing them for refusing. In this same way, in some alien abduction stories, there have been accounts of people forced to eat or drink substances, in some cases, violently. Fairies were noted to dance in circles and leave behind fairy rings in their wake. These could be rings of mushrooms, or of darker or lighter grass. UFOs have noted to leave circular marks in places where they have been landing, sometimes flattened grass, sometimes burnt areas. Similarly, the idea of strange lights being attributed to fairies has a long history in folklore, often associated with danger. While UFOs are described as both lights in the sky as well as strange lights seen through trees, these sights afterwards of both types are noted to have strange properties and effects on people. Descriptions of alien beings are generally in line with the provided by science fiction and folklore tells us that the good people can use glamour to appear however they want and to make our surroundings appear to us however they want, making it possible that the aliens people are seeing are fairies using glamour. If we expect them to look like what science fiction has taught us, aliens will look like it's possible that is exactly what we see during an alien experience or abduction because our consciousness is programmed to see them this way and they may know this, therefore put themselves as this these beings. There are people who will say that we see far fewer fairy encounters today and fewer fairy abductions, yet now we have the phenomena of alien encounters and abductions which have many of the same hallmarks. One might argue that the fairies are no less active, but have simply switched how people are perceiving their activity, so that those who believe in, are open to believing in aliens, get aliens. While those who believe in fairies, continue to have experience more in the line with older folklore. Fairies used to be feared, and that fear had power. Aliens still are feared, as an unknown and technique, logically superior factor. For further on this subject, it might be a good idea to read Passport to Magonia and Trojan Feast. Both of these discuss fairy and aliens as an interwoven subject. Hmm. Now that I find interesting and I will tell you guys why. Because everything I have just spoken is completely true. And I have my own beliefs. I'll only talk about those with members. I'm not going to discuss that here. 
Um, but yeah, this one of the most interesting topics indeed. And um, like I say, we all have our own beliefs. I have mine. But I'm definitely not yet ready to say aliens are not fairies. Let's put it that way. Just saying. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Encyclopedia of Fairies and many blessings. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Encyclopedia of Fairies, the Fae, the Good People, um, all the folklore and the stories surrounding them just in more of an alphabetical order um may not be an encyclopedia of every single one but it will be a lot of them so we're going to continue where we left off we're now on Anne Jeffries Anne Jeffries is one of the most popular stories by the way um she was actually a servant in Cornwall in the late 17th century who fell ill for a period of time afflicted by what many believed was a fairy-induced illness. After recovering from this sickness, Anne, by all accounts, became a devout Protestant, but she also afterwards had the power to heal by laying her hands on a person. She would later admit to her employees, who kept her on, and also um, they cared for her when she was sick, not now, but obviously when she was sick, she needed carers, and they did care for her then. She had been made sick by the fairies, she stated, and that they would come to her and tell her things even after she was well again. And Anne, she sort of attributed her abilities to the fairies and of what happened to her because of the fairies. It was also claimed by her employers, son, that Anne lived for six months on nothing but fairy food. She ate no human food whatsoever, and the good people provided all she needed, from money to supplies, for a healing work. Like many others before her, uh, and eventually fell afoul of a legal system, not for a healing, but for prophecies that she began to give, although these too, she said, came from the fairies. She was eventually imprisoned and denied food, with the intent to prove that she was lying about the fairies feeding her. However, she did not seem to suffer for lack of being fed by her jailers, and after some time, she was released because they could not prove she was lying about the first claim. So yes, they did. They tried to starve her to death to prove she was lying. It didn't work, though. The next one we're going to go on is Welsh, and I am really not very good at pronouncing um, any Welsh language, so I will just try my best. Awen, the Welsh name of the other world, although it's often given in Welsh dictionaries as the underworld. In the Mabinogi, it is said to be ruled by a realm. Um which may be actually pronounced Rome, while later folklore names Gwenelund and its king. In the first branch of the Mabinogion, we learn that the rule of Awen is divided between Rome and his rival Afghan. Waron is unable to defeat until he gains the help of the mortal Please, After Afghan's death, Rome rules Awen in its entirety. A variety of beings, such as the the um, Goraget Aram, or Goraget Amwin, are especially associated with this place. It also also seems to be the home of both fairies and some Welsh gods, including not only Ram and Gwynedd, but also Bran. Amwin and its inhabitants appear throughout the Mabinogi in various ways although the exact location of Anwen is unclear, appearing to shift between tales. In the Arthurian poem, Peredu Anwen, it seems that Anwen is or includes a group of islands, whereas the Mabinogian describes it more as a cohesive place within Wales. 
and when itself does not seem to be that different from mortal earth, although the animals and other creatures within it vary from those that are like mortal beasts to those that are monstrous and extremely dangerous. Hmm. So yeah, those are the next two uh, fae and fae tales in our encyclopedia. Obviously, we're still on A right now. That's why, but I'm not very good with Welsh, guys. I apologise. It's one of the languages that I cannot pick up, no matter how hard I try. I don't know why, it's just, that's life. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this part of the fae and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Encyclopedia of Fairies, Fae, I mean one of you want to call them, Fae folk, good people, the little people, Fae, fairies, oh, to me nature spirits, whatever you wish to call them because there's so many different words out there. Since we're on A, we are going to look at appearance. Fairy appearances can be very widely known and, well, let's just say, depending where you are in the world, they can be different in an extreme degree. It's almost impossible to say anything definitive about how fairies as a group may look. There are, however, some broad generalisations that can be made within wider categories that may help people grasp exactly how varied this subject can be. When we look at types of fairies, we can make clear statements about appearance. Size. So in folklore, we may find fairies such as Murians, who appear as small as ants, while other beings like Jack and Irons, Jimmy Squarefoot, and some types of trolls can be more than 12 feet tall. There are even some folkloric accounts of giants as tall as trees. Most commonly, fairies seem to fall into two rough-sized categories, with many obvious exceptions, and these are described between 18 inches and 3 feet tall, such as leprechauns, and those described between five and six feet tall, for example, Bahaban, Sihi, and Tulateg are described in Welsh sources as about the size of children and look much like average adult humans. Colouring Fairies can be found in a variety of different skin and hair colours, from those that might realistically be found among human populations to more otherworldly variations such as green. In anecdotal accounts, we find human-like fairies described as blonde, brunette and red-headed. Similarly, fairy animals may look much like earthly animals or may be distinctly coloured, sometimes white with red ears, sometimes a dark green, green colour. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Anthropomorphic. Many fairies are depicted in folklore as anecdotal accounts, as appearing very human-looking. No matter what their size or colouring may be, they can still look very human. The children of Woolpit were said to have green-tinted skin, but otherwise they looked entirely human. And indeed, the girl grew into a seemingly ordinary human woman. Stories of the Irish Deowin Sihi usually describe them as very human in appearance, although clearly of the world in nature. Some shape-shifting fairies are known to take on human-seeming forms, including the puka and the kelpie. Animalistic. As described above, fairies often appear as anthropomorphic forms. Um, they're not always entirely human-looking, that is. Descriptions of dwarves sometimes mention that their feet are animal-like, and goblins may be described sometimes as having very animalistic appearances, including the tufted ears, whiskers and tail we see in Christina's Rosetti's Point Goblin Market. Holderfolk may be described on occasion with cow's tails, the Beoban, Sihi, with deer's hooves, and Gleistigs are sometimes said to have the hooves and even bodies of goats. Deformities. 
Another common feature of fairies is some type of physical deformity, which doesn't seem to impede their actions any, but which they are at pains to hide in order to pass as human. In Scottish folklore, a fairy may have but one nostril or eye, large teeth or webbed feet. The Holder folk, besides having tails, were also sometimes said to have hollow backs, so that while their fronts would seem to be that of an attractive human being, but touching their back would reveal a concave space. Dwarves in some stories are described with backwards turned feet, and accounts of brownies might mention a lack of nose. This is only obviously a small sample of the huge array of fairies that can be found in folklore. And it's important that you understand most fairies can look human. They don't look monstrous. They are not tiny little people, but can look absolutely human. Not only that, they can look like regular animals too. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Yes, they can look like genuine animals. They can look like nature and blending with nature, it's also said. And they don't always come in small sizes. They can be seven plus feet tall and we could never notice them. The fairy people are good and bad, beautiful and hideous, stately and comical. One of their greatest variations is their size. And that was said by Briggs in 1976. Hollow backs, back turned feet, hooves, single eyes and limbs, small, huge, horns, tails, famine thin and very large, webbed feet or hands and all descriptions that we can find in the various folklore for different types of fairy beings, which is true. Now we move on to the Ralm, a Welsh mythic figure who appears in the first branch of the Mabinoke and is described as the king of a land called Amwin, which is often equated to the other world. Ron is described in the first branch of the Mabinoke wearing grey woolen hunting clothes, riding a grey horse, with red-eared white hunting hounds. After the human king, Bwys, crosses unknowingly into Ron's realm and drives his hounds off a deer they had brought down, Ron confronts him, and after some discussion, the two agree to switch places for a year, with Puiz assuming Ron's throne in order to defeat an enemy that Ron is unable to successfully fight. The two remain friends after returning to their rightful places. Ron, in later folklore, leads a version of the wild hunt, including his hounds, at Swinan Wen. Very interesting tale indeed. Um, those kind of stories I absolutely love and if you're ever wanting to learn about the Mabinogi the best place to go is to definitely go to um, my suggestion anyway would be the one and only druid Dan the Bard um, you can find him on YouTube Dan the Bard you can find him on Spotify and if you go to Spotify you can play the Mabinogi he has the selection there and he also does a druid podcast as well i'll try and pop some of them in the description below the links um if you're interested in this kind of stuff he's definitely one of them just awesome awesome person that you can go to and check his stuff out thank you for listening to this episode of the encyclopedia of fairies please hit like share if you can and if you've not yet subscribed, please do so. It's all free, doesn't cost anything, and it really helps the channel. Many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to the next part of our fairies and the encyclopedia of fairies. We're now on the Azrai. An English water fairy. It lives beneath the surface of bodies of water and is sometimes dredged up by fishermen. In several folk tales featuring Azrai, the hapless fairy is pulled up by a fisherman, bound by the human who captured her, covered in water plants, 
but dies and becomes nothing but a puddle of water in the bottom of the boat. She's in a fairy tale by Briggs, 1976, and she was a female and she was a Nazarite. The next, Athak, a word which in Gaelic means among other things, a giant and monster. Athak is a term of particularly dangerous Scottish fairies. I can't pronounce it right, don't know how it's pronounced, guys. It's not a specific type of fairy, but like the Scottish, Fuathan Athlac is a group which includes a variety of types of fairies known to be especially monstrous or dangerous to humans. And the Athlac is um, it's spelled A-T-H-A-C-H. Whether I'm pronouncing it right or not, I don't know. The next is the Hoyiski. This is a Angelicized name for each use. The Avalon, also called the Isle of Apples or the Fortunate Isle. Avalon is another worldly land found in Arthurian lore, said to be ruled over by nine sisters led by the eldest, Morgan, who is also apparently the wisest. Hmm. That is literally um, the ones that we've done in A now. Um, the reason that I'm not doing them all is because I intend to do an A to Z of many mythical creatures, which will include some of the fae. So I'm kind of keeping those fae separate than the folklore ones because it makes it easier for me. That way I'm not doing them twice over without realising. So, yeah. That's why. But that's all the A's done in the uh, Encyclopedia of Fairies for now. But after this, we will be looking at other creatures eventually. So there'll probably be some in there that we've not heard yet. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to all of the A's. When we come back, we'll move into the B's. Please hit that like, share if you can, and do consider subscribing because it's free. And it really helps the channel. Many blessings.